Now, I guess one of the questions I would like to ask is, what is your level of understanding of sustainability? Um, for example, have you heard about the kind of things that I'm doing? Have you heard about the book I've written? Uh, or is all of this kind of new to you? So let's ask the question, uh, it's kind of new to me. Okay, that means that, if, that whatever we're talking about, I'm sorry, I don't have this on. Now we're getting into the high-tech part now. We had a, a European minister in the city of Bulawayo who used to always wear his tie clip way up here, right at the top. And someone asked him why he did that. And he said, well, when Billy Graham was here for the campaign, I noticed that that's where he wore his tie clip. So he's wearing his tie He didn't realize that Billy Graham's tie clip was also a microphone. <laughs> So anyway, whenever I put one of these on, I think of that guy that is imitating Billy Graham. <laughs> uh, let me just say a, a few words to get started. I'll tell you my story. And uh, and at any point uh, you want to ask questions, we'll just interact with each other. And I'm going to be calling on some people because I know what you're doing. And uh, so we'll, we'll get the uh, interactive part rolling in a little while. Uh, my own experience is that I went to Africa in 1961 when missionaries were still traveling by boat. I am so old, I went to the mission field by boat. 18 days on the water from New York to Cape Town, nonstop. Uh, I don't travel very well by boat. Um, but fortunately, I, I was only seasick one time. But unfortunately, it lasted for 18 days. <laughs> oh, Dr. Keith is here. We can now, we now have the anchor way to, to this discussion. <laughs> and uh, so I spent most of the 1960s in Africa. I was single for two years. Uh, at the end of those two years, I came home. Unfortunately, I flew home. And that was the big change that took place in the 60s. We stopped going by boat. We started going by airplane. It was a wonderful thing. But I came home and uh, finished my undergraduate studies. And the missions director said, would you go back to Africa? And I said, no, thank you. I said, there's something going on in Africa I don't understand. And I would rather be sent to Japan because our church was doing church planting and evangelism in Japan. And in Africa, they were doing everything under the sun. I mean, we had uh, secondary schools, primary schools, uh, hospitals, farms, and bookstores, and all sorts of things, uh, in addition to uh, starting churches. So I just I wanted to decline the invitation to go back. But they said, no, you're not needed in Japan. You're needed in Africa. And what I realized is the Lord was leading me back into that situation to get a further education on how it worked. I was frustrated by what I saw the first part of it. But as I went back into it, I learned more and more of what's happening in colonial Central Africa. 
By the end of the next five and a half years, which ended up being 1971, I was desperate for some answers. So I went for missionary training. Now, I don't recommend that you do the service first and get the training later. I don't. I mean, you, some of you are surgeons. You, you, you don't practice first and then say, hey, maybe I should go and learn about what I'm doing. Even if you're a good person and your heart's in the right place. You operate on me without knowing what you're doing, then my heart's not in the right place by the time you're done. So I prefer training first. And I become an advocate for missionary training. It's interesting how we insist on training for people who work with the body. In fact, you can be uh, charged by the federal government for uh, fraud if you practice with a fake uh, diploma on the wall. But some people get away with it for 20 years. They haven't figured out that they, this guy's not really trained. <laughs> but in missionary service, if you work with the soul or the spirit, no training required. What does that tell us? That tells us that we have a higher regard for the human body than we do for the human spirit in some respects. So anyway, I uh, went off to Fuller Theological Seminary uh, and uh, studied, did the two-year program, and uh, actually had my sanity restored because I began to think there was something wrong with me. I was getting catching on to some of the issues that we were facing in Central Africa, and uh, I was so out of step with some of my colleagues that I began to think that spiritually there was something wrong with me. And I need to pray more. I pray more. And this thing hasn't cleared up. Then I began to actually think there was something wrong with me mentally. I'm so out of step with reality. Must be something wrong with me. And just then, God in his providence brought a man into my life who spoke a word of a prophetic nature. And he said to me, you are frustrated by what you're seeing here in Central Africa, but... And he said, you might think that you're out of step with reality, but he said, where you're going to that place, the Fuller, he said, there are people who think like you do. And you will not be so out of place after all. So when I got there and found missionary anthropologists affirming the suspicions that I had and saying, yes, that's true, what you're feeling is true, but this and this is also true. So they further radicalized me and made me totally useless for sustaining the colonial system in Central Africa, which was deeply entrenched. I mean deeply entrenched. As missionaries, we enjoyed riding first and second class on the trains because we could when our African brothers who were traveling with us to the same conference had to be in a different part of the train. We didn't seem to even think that was a problem. There was so much money flowing in those days from one source or another. Oftentimes the government, we would get government money for the projects we were doing, but it came from the mission from overseas, came from businesses, came from all sorts of places. There was so much money that in our mission, you could buy a brand new car every year. Every year. 
Sounds unbelievable. But we worked out a deal with the dealership in the city that if we paid a certain number of pounds, in those days they were Central African pounds, shillings, and pence. But if you brought in a certain number of pounds, you could get a new car, and it looked exactly like the one that you... The one you were getting looked like the one you were bringing in, and the local people didn't even know that we were changing cars because it was a Volkswagen Kombi. It was white. It looked exactly the same, and the local people didn't even know. That's the extent to which foreign money was dominating the paradigm. Anyway, I got to this place. I studied. I learned an awful lot and uh, learned something about the animistic way, uh, you know, worldview, which things which we just weren't introduced to. And when I finished, I uh, was invited to work there and got stuck in the machinery. And for six years, I stayed and worked in the School of World Mission at Fuller. When the original faculty was there, Drs. McGavern, Tippett, Winter, Wagner, Kraft, uh, Arthur Glasser, uh, Edwin Orr, R. Pierce Beaver, these were all... Um, uh, every day, my privilege to go to work with them. Anyway, uh, in 1983, I began this itinerating and started raising awareness about unhealthy dependency in the Christian movement. And I've been doing it, I've been on the road or in the air much of the time since 1983. Um, what, I've, what we have discovered is that this unhealthy dependency that's been introduced in so many parts of the world, and by the way, I found out that it was much wide, a much wider problem than just East Central and Southern Africa. But what I discovered in the process was that this unhealthy dependency is a sickness. It is not normal. It is not the way God intended the church to be started. But I also discovered that it's a sickness with a cure. Churches don't need to die from it. They, uh, some people, by uh, natural revelation, figured out how to avoid the dependency syndrome from the very beginning. And you take, the, for example, if you're familiar with West Africa, you know about the Church of Pentecost. Oh, how many thousands of churches they planted, but they're in 70 countries around the world. But from the very beginning, somehow or another, they figured out that foreign money was not the solution to church planting. And having made that shift from away from foreign funding to local resources, the multiplication factor became natural. And uh, there are various other places in the world. I met a man from Thailand who was a church planter with one of the Asian mission societies. And he said, we have not done it the way missionaries did it in Central Africa. He said, for example, he said, I have heard about places uh, uh, where it was done that way, but I... But we never had that experience where we are, that kind of thing. Because it was assumed from the very beginning that churches can be self-supporting, self-governing, and self-propagating. Um, 
I talk a lot, write a lot, about assumptions, because I think assumptions are the key to understanding what we're talking about here. An assumption, in my description, is a little self-fulfilling prophecy. That if you make an assumption uh, about something uh, like this, it will take you down a road that ends up over there. If you change the assumption from the beginning, and it looks like this, you will end up over here. And there's a very vast difference between there and there. Unhealthy dependency prolonged over, you know, uh, uh, deeply entrenched and prolonged for a, a period of time. And over here, a church which can stand on its own two feet virtually from the beginning. The assumptions with which we begin drive this process. We're going to hear in a few minutes, we're going to hear from some people in Charity Christian Mission, and we're going to hear that they have figured out how when they got rid of their vehicles and started riding bicycles as missionaries, they changed their assumption about transport. And we're going to find the long-term implications of that kind of a paradigm shift based on assumptions. These assumptions are so powerful. If we assume people are too poor to give back to God, we will probably be right. They won't have anything to give to God because we assume they're too poor to do so. On the other hand, if we preach a gospel which says, when you're rightly related to God in gratitude for the salvation you have received, you give something to Him, you change your lifestyle, you change your practices, he blesses what you do, you have even more to give to him. Think about that shift in assumptions for a moment and what that does. Right now, I'm uh, part of a, a group which we call Global Self-Reliance Network. And uh, this is really a fledgling group. And they don't have any money. They don't have any offices. They don't have a building anywhere. It's a loose uh, affiliation of people who are like-minded in terms of promoting uh, self-reliance in the Christian movement. And it's fascinating to watch what has happened happening among people who are not functioning on a foreign-funded missionary paradigm. A number of these are Ugandans. A few of them are from Kenya. One is from Zambia. One is from Nepal. One worked in Cambodia for a number of years. Well, last year we got together in Nairobi for the first time just to sit down and look at each other and say, hey, what are you doing to avoid or overcome the problem of unhealthy dependency? listen to each other. And it went very well. Um, uh, in, you know, very encouraging stories emerged right out of the group of what they've been doing over the last number of years. So much so they want to do, do it again. So next week we gather 
uh, in uh, Kampala. And uh, the same group is going to come together. They're going to tell each other what has happened in the last year since we met last time. But let me give you the kind of uh, uh, things that have happened as a result of, uh, at our first meeting. They began telling how they took this message of Africa can do it, Africa is able, people are uh, people have resources, they may be unmobilized, they're doing something with their resources, but they're not giving it to the church. Okay, what can we do to encourage that to change? And all you have to do is go around and see how many people have cell phones and uh, what they're uh, purchasing, how much they're spending on weddings, how much they're spending on funeral uh Society, burial societies and you realize that there is money but the church often gets only coins so anyway these chaps they started doing this they went down into Burundi they went down into Tanzania they went over into Kenya they went to Sudan and they're encouraging their fellow Africans to figure out a way to do God's work without asking someone else to fund it went into western Kenya, spent a week in a diocese, and at the end of the week, the people took a collection and bought a vehicle for their bishop. <coughs> they went into uh, to Kampala, spent a week uh, teaching in a, in a congregation, and the congregation took a collection and bought a vehicle for their pastor. It's that sort of thing. They've discovered to use self-reliance teaching as a an, an evangelistic tool. Now, this is something I had never dreamed of. I mean, uh, I, I often talk about the creativity that's released when local people gra- grasp, uh, you know, an issue. Well, here's an example. I never dreamed of this. I've been doing these self-reliance seminars all over the place, mostly East Central and Southern Africa for the last 25 years or so. But here's an innovation I had not thought of. They decided to run some self-reliance seminars for non-believers. And I said, say what? They said, no, there is a problem. They decided in the African traditional community of unhealthy dependency. And yeah, I knew that, but I didn't think about running a seminar on that. Well, they said what happens is people are leaving the rural areas, moving into the urban areas, attaching themselves to a a family member, a relative, and expecting that family member to care for them. And one woman said, I went home the other day and found 13 family members living in my house expecting me to feed them on my salary and I can't afford to do that. I can't carry 13 extra people. So what's happening is they're leaving the rural area where there is a field to be to be plowed and planted and harvested. They're leaving that resource which God has provided. They're moving to the urban area contributing to unemployment which is very high and expecting someone to care for them, and we can't do it. So these chaps have decided, let's 
deal with this. Let's work at business creation or whatever's necessary to get people to figure out how to support themselves rather than become a burden on other family members. They've also figured out that in the Muslim community something similar is happening. So now they go out into the islands of Lake Victoria and they're running seminars on self-reliance with a secular, of a secular nature. The way they're using it as an evangelistic tool is by inserting a lesson on the fatherhood of God. How about that for creativity? Or another <clears throat> on forgiveness. Why choose forgiveness? Well, it's a problem. Non-believing people have a have a, dif- a difficult time forgiving those who hurt them, especially women whose husbands have gone off to do something else, maybe even moved to Europe, which happens, abandoning their family, and the woman is living with this bitterness about the way she's been treated. So they run some, a, a, a subject into these secular seminars on forgiveness. They found one Muslim sheikh so interested in what he was learning that he borrowed a copy of my book and read it twice. Now, what is a Muslim sheikh doing reading about all the problems of unhealthy dependency in the Christian movement? It's some indication that there is a gap here or an unfulfilled need even apart from what's happening in the church. And these pastors have figured it out. I was telling... um, our friend from Liberia here, that we're getting more and more uh, uh, invitations from West Africa, Sierra Leone, Cote d'Ivoire, Liberia, come and help us. We're, you know, and so we're now trying to figure out, and this next week when we get together, we're going to try to figure out how to mobilize these pastors from Uganda uh, to go as far as West Africa and introduce some some of this you know what it is? It's, it's the desperate need for people to grasp something they can believe in and of a positive nature that works. I mean, our nation saw this simply when someone stood up and said, yes, we can. That is the message that many people are waiting Believe in yourself, it can be done. Don't listen to those who say, you're poor, you'll always be that way, it will never change. Don't listen to those people. Listen to the people who say, yes, it can change. A right relationship with God, giving back to Him, uh, getting a new relationship with your fellow men, all of these things contribute to, yes, it can be done. That's what our gospel is about. Now, uh, I probably have said enough. No, let me tell you a story. I'll just tell you one story to show how yes, we can work in that in this context. And uh, for those of you who know about me and have heard me speak, you've heard this story, obviously. But if you haven't, if you haven't read my writings and so on, I'll tell you a story about a church in South Africa called the Black Assemblies of God. There are three Assemblies of God churches in South Africa, but one of them is known as the Black Assemblies of God. And in the 1970s, they had a a senior minister by the name of Nicholas Bangu. And Reverend Bangu came to North America to get money for his poor church every year. 
And once while he was here, God said to him, don't ask these people for money. Go back home and get the money from your own people. And being a Pentecostal, he had a conversational uh, relationship with the Lord. And so he said to the Lord, okay, but do you realize that my church is unemployed women and children? Lord, is that where you expect me to go for this money? And the Lord said, yes, that's where you go. Now, how many of you, except for Keith, (laughs) who is getting tired of hearing me tell this story, how many of you have actually thought that the ideal place to take a collection is among unemployed women and children? How many think that's the ideal place? Uh Uh-huh. Well, maybe that's why you're here today, because I'm going to tell you that is the ideal place to take a collection. Unemployed women and children. A very fertile place to take a collection. So the Lord said to him, that's what you do. And he said to the Lord, okay, but you'll have to show me how. So the Lord said to him, you go home and teach those women how to care for their families. Teach them how to evangelize their husbands. Teach them how to make something with their hands so they can earn a living. And teach them to give something back to God in thanksgiving. In other words, teach them to tithe. So Reverend Bangu did this. He went back to South Africa and he taught the women. They learned how to care for their families and evangelize their husbands. And I can tell you that was successful because today there are men in those churches. I have seen them. But he also taught them, if you make something to sell, if you make ten dresses, while you're sewing them, remember that one of these is for the Lord, it's not yours. If you weave baskets and that's what you're going to sell, And you make 20 of them. While you're weaving them, just remember that two of these are for the Lord. They're not yours. And uh, so on. This church was so transformed that now when they get together, they go to a place called Tabanchu. And they take a collection. And the last time that I know they went there, the collection was over 15 million South African rand, which at seven to the dollar is more than two million U.S. dollars from a church of unemployed women and children. How many of you think a good place to take a collection is among unemployed women and children? I got a convert. I got a convert. You see what I mean? Let me remind you. In the... In uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, the Apostle Paul was taking a collection among the Macedonians for where? Jerusalem. He was taking a collection on the mission field to give to the mother church. On the mission field to give to the mother church. I can't find any place in the New Testament where a collection was taken in the mother church for the mission field. Maybe you know. If you do, tell me, because I have not found it. 
money never goes from the mother church to the mission field in the New Testament. Once in a while, it goes from the mother church to the missionary, to Paul himself. But even there, he says, I would rather die than have somebody give me money for the work I'm doing. And interestingly, he didn't take money from the people that he evangelized. Why was that? Because there were hucksters going around doing that sort of thing and getting money in return for it, and and so he was opposed to that. But coming back to this church in, in Macedonia, they were sending a collection to Jerusalem. Now, obviously... This church in Macedonia was well off because that's where you go to take a collection normally, isn't it? How many of you would agree that they were well off? Nobody. Well, you know your Bibles pretty well. Yeah. They were in severe, Paul says they were in severe trial and extreme poverty. Paul took a collection from people who were in severe trial and extreme poverty. He says, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of giving. In other words, those Macedonians were beggars. But what were they begging for? They were begging for the privilege of giving. And then he, in the next verse he says, and they did not do as we ex- uh, expected. They gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. They gave themselves first to the Lord. And if you want to get at the root of the dependency mentality, you begin to address the issue of do people know the Lord? I had one man, uh, a pastor in Lusaka, in a seminar stood up and said, I don't know what to do. The people in my church don't give. In fact, they don't even know the Lord. I said to him, are you expecting people who don't know the Lord to put money in the church collection? His challenge was not to teach giving or stewardship. It was to introduce people to who Jesus is. Let me tell you, and I'm going to stop here in a minute, and then we're going to get some interaction from some of you. Some. I've come to believe that the way we go about church planning as Westerners There is something about the way we do it that slows down the process of church planting. In other words, we go out with the idea that we evangelize this area, we invite these people into a right relationship with the Lord, but they are so poor that we have to give them something. And so now that we have evangelized these people, They are adherents, but they are dependents because we have to help them. So now we're going to move on, but we have to give these people something and we evangelize the next group and we have to help them. And the further we go, the more dependents we have gathered. And I maintain that the assumptions that we're functioning under when we do that mean that we're not gathering recruits into God's army to help us go further with the gospel. 
we're actually gathering dependents who will need some of the funds that we have for evangelizing the rest of the world. And some of us get so bogged down that we can't go any further. We're going to work among these people and all of the resources we have are going to be consumed by the work we're doing with the ones who are dependent. Why do we do this? Why do we do it this way? Well, number one, we begin with the assumption that they're too poor and they have nothing to give to God. If we change that assumption and said, for the right relationship you get with learning to know who God is and how he forgives and how you get this relationship between uh, heaven and earth repaired and so on, in return for that, you give something back to him. Then all of a sudden, our assumptions are producing resources and not just taking resources. But there's something else. I think the paradigm on which we're functioning is being driven by the good feeling we get by being givers. You know what the Bible says. Jesus' own words in the book of Acts. It's more blessed to give than to receive. Right? More blessed to give? We pride ourselves in being givers. And sometimes I think we will be the happiest when we have turned the whole world into receivers so that we can do our giving. Just read the literature. We are so rich, the rest of the world is so poor. Millennium goals. End of poverty, Jeffrey Sachs. We are rich, they are poor, we are the givers, they are the receivers. If the whole we turn the whole world into receivers, we may continue to get a good feeling, but we end up with economic basket cases all over the place. What if we shifted that assumption and said, these people that I'm, that God has called me to, to live among, they, they're steeped in all sorts of things that displease God. They have idol worship. They have, when they learn to know Him, it's going to be their privilege to give something back to God in thanksgiving for their salvation. Supposing we began with that assumption. How different the missionary world would be if we began with the assumption that people, even in their poverty, even a widow with a very small amount of oil. They have this saying in East Africa, if you give nothing to God, he can multiply it and it will still be nothing. So what if we shifted and now I'm going to stop. Uh, who are we going to start with? Keith. <laughs> Come up here and take this microphone. I want Keith to, uh, and then you'll be able to ask Keith questions. I should call him Dr. Gammon. He is an orthopedic surgeon. Keith is fine. <laughs> oh, he says Keith is fine. <laughs> I just want him to, from his perspective, tell you... Why set, uh, 500 host- Christian hospitals in India have closed their doors? Keith, go ahead, Tom. Yeah, in India, there's a, since the 1960s, there's been a shortage of funds to all mission hospitals. 
I don't know what happened in in the U.S. and U.K. during this time, but probably there was a meltdown at that time towards uh, missions. Before 1950, there were about 800 hospitals, both big and small, in in India, and a lot of them were funded by what we call foreign contributions. And for foreign contributions to reach the hospitals, you had to have a some sort of accounting with the with the government. It was called an FCRA account, without which you were not supposed to get anything in large amounts into India, into Indian missions. After the after the 1960, um, a lot of mission hospitals started closing down. What we have now are 300 mission hospitals from what was 800 before the 1950s. So you can see the drop in the number of hospitals. Unfortunately, the ones that have been lost are the ones that really were working among the poor. The problem is, um, if you say you you work among the poor, usually it signifies that you're doing something like a poor job because of the funds that you get is in very short supply. I know there's a person called Tims who had said this many years ago. And a lot of uh, funds that come for for the poor sometimes are not very large in amount, and eventually the uh, whole program for the poor in in a lot of uh, underdeveloped countries actually slowly closed down. So there has been a strategy to overcome this shortage in funds, and I think, uh, like what uh, Glenn was saying, when we give to a person, he was talking about the analogy of the giver and the receiver, there is a positive attitude in the giver. It makes you feel good because you're giving to something that you feel is good and you're giving of your earnings or what you collect or the church is giving. So there's a positive um, attitude in the giver. But we fail to realize for many, many years that there is a negative impact on the receiver because you always are looking for the money to come from somewhere and you're not having a positive attitude in your mind to see what can I do to make this work from our end. What are we doing towards the work that is there? You may do something physical, but are you doing something uh, material in, in, uh, in terms of the economy of your of uh, what you want to achieve for the plan and purpose of the hospital or working with the poor. And that's where the analogy broke down between the giver and the receiver. And eventually, when the shortage was felt, the receiver did not have any way of bridging this uh, gap of financial restraints that began to take place. Uh, Thankfully, a lot of... uh, Hospitals now in India have turned this around. A lot of uh, this has happened because the government has put into place um, a lot of new strategies in in terms of being able to tap on government funds. The central government, which has a huge um, number of people working, working for it, now have what's called a central government health scheme, CGHS, and a lot of uh, mission hospitals are able to tap on this. The government pays for patients who, who come from the central government who need treatment. The other thing is um, now the 
they are starting a health scheme for the really poor in India where you, the, each uh, family pays a small amount of money, something little less than a dollar a month, and the family is covered. And that means when a family uh, is in dire straits because of medical need, then, the, then they can tap on the government to pay for the hospitalization. It's a big uh, boon. Unfortunately, we would think that the church would, would feel that the mission hospital is an extension of the work of Christ. But uh, most churches would say, you know, you do your, your fundraising and we'll do ours. And very often you don't see the church trying to help mission hospitals when they fail. In fact, uh, when a lot of um, the foreign funds dried up to the, to the Indian hus- um, uh, mission hospitals, the uh, foreign agencies handed over these hospitals to, to the churches. And because the church did not look, as it, uh, look on it as ownership of the mission hospital movement, they really didn't do very much in trying to bolster it by way financially or by means of uh, organizational <coughs> skills. And uh, eventually a lot of these hospitals were sold by the churches, very often for even personal gain, unfortunately. And that's what really happened. I was talking with uh, Dr. Thomas, who, who's, uh, who's the doctor in charge of global ministries for the, um, for the Methodist Church in New York. And uh, he was telling me, I worked in a Methodist mission hospital after I finished my, my med school because um, um, the, medic, uh, the Methodist Church sponsored me to work uh, for med school, and uh, without which I wouldn't have been able to do the course. It's too expensive. So when I finished, I started to work in the Methodist Hospital, and unfortunately, that hospital where I worked and after med school has gone down, and now it's probably closed. It was just going down slowly and gradually. And two of the hospitals that were handed over to the church had been sold, even without talking with the people who substantially provided for the building of these hospitals. That's the uh, North American Baptist Church. So, I I mean, the North American uh, Methodist Church. So this is the failing equation that's happening in India. Uh, But uh, thankfully, there are a lot of uh, hospitals now that are finding ways and means to overcome this. A lot of... uh, Businesses are employing, when they employ people, we, uh, they are starting to give people health insurance coverage, and by that means also the hospitals are able to break even. Most mission hospitals um, don't pay very much, so <laughs> that's a problem. The other problem for failing mission hospitals is that uh, we don't have enough Christian doctors, doctors work, wanting to work in mission hospitals. There are only three Christian hospitals that supply um, Christian doctors to mission hospitals. We have a system of uh, church sponsorship. There's a Christian Medical College and Hospital Velo, Christian Medical College and Hospital Ludhiana, and Miraj Medical College. These three uh, medical schools supply... um, CMC, Velo, and Ludhiana have about 120 students that they take every year. 70% of these are church-sponsored. 
and these are sent over to mission hospitals. These uh, 70% of this 120 um, we presume will work in mission hospitals for a number of years. That does not happen. Only 20% after these two or three years for which they are obligated to serve in missions, they leave. Only 20% of that number remain and want to stay on. One reason is because the pay structure is quite poor. And uh, the other, of course, the main reason is the motivation is not there. So how do we overcome this? And the, these colleges are trying to find ways and means to motivate students while they are in the, the uh, college course, motivate them to work on a long-term basis for missions. Keith, thank you very much. Now, you're going to hear more from Dr. Keith this afternoon. If you go to uh, room 236, uh, I believe it's in this section, uh, he'll be doing a breakout session like this this afternoon. I'm sorry, we ran out of time, and that's because I talked too long, and I apologize for that. Um, can you just stand up and tell them about Charity Christian Mission? And what are you doing in Ghana? And just give them a word. My name is Wes Leiby, and uh, I'm not medical by any stretch of the imagination, as Dr. Joel well knows, whatever my wife's baby up, up in the bush in Ghana. <laughs> um, but we're doing church planning there, and uh, yeah, I guess just to give you a tiny little story of our mission, Brother Glenn uh, has really been a blessing to us. We're based out of southeast Pennsylvania near where he is. And uh, years ago when I joined our mission, there was a lot of dependency issues We've gone into West Africa like many people do, you know, supporting pastors, building churches, providing vehicles, and, um, a lot about healthy dependency issues, churches that weren't motivated to reach their own people. Um, you know, took a pickup and went out into rural areas and uh, showed, you know, got a generator and lights and showed slides of the Bible storing method, creation of Christ. And, but local leaders couldn't take up the same initiative because they needed all the same stuff and we didn't have the money. And so we had to make a, a tough decision, but it's been a very good one, to establish a more replicable model of ministry. And uh, Daniel Keniston, my predecessor uh, in the Konkomba tribe, an animistic tribe in rural Ghana, uh, made a decision that was to get rid of his vehicle and ride a bicycle and go out to the villages and teach on the ground with a kerosene lantern at night um, the Bible storying method. And all of a sudden, uh, it became very reputable. And uh, you know, the, the developing church leaders were able to grab onto that, uh, that pattern, and the thing has mushroomed out. He had 40 churches planted in, in just a couple of years. And, uh, and that's the glory of the Lord on us, but you kind of get the idea. You know, just trying, <laughs> trying to walk away from dependency and, and get something reputable. Thanks very much. <laughs> Arnie, do you want to say something? Do you want to add to this? This is Dr. Arnie Gorski, and he's got a lot to say, and we have plenty of people here who could speak. But just let me say a few words, and then we've got to get these people onto their break. But, uh, yeah. Uh, well, this uh, the topic is, is so very important, the sustainability of of uh, uh, Christian medical missions. That's not only a problem in developing countries, it's a problem in, in our country as well. As you know, uh, it used to be 
just about every hospital was named a St. Luke's or, or a Presbyterian. Or uh, it used to be that the churches were responsible for the healthcare institutions in our country, and, not, and over our, our our generation, that's that's all changed. So so it's no longer the holistic approach that that uh, our missionary mentors, uh, going way back to, to Paul Brand and, and uh, Carl Taylor, uh, uh, the people that that uh, taught uh, uh, us how to pro- uh, practice holistic care, we're no longer following that model. So we have a whole lot to learn from, from Glenn here about the sustainability of our own health care system. And I don't know if, you, if any of you had the privilege to hear Carl Taylor uh, speak uh, two years ago at the plenary session here. Now, I don't have the answers to sustainability of, of, uh, of uh, the Christian uh, uh, healthcare institutions uh, throughout the world. But according to the World Health Organization, according to our uh, U.S. Uh, uh, Department of Health and Human Services, and according to our own AMA, Carl Taylor did have the answer. And it goes way back to the Christian Medical Commission back in the 1930s, where they came up with the very concept of primary care. They are the originators, the Christian Medical Commission came up with the concept of primary care. And nowadays, that is exactly what's being promoted by all of these the major organizations. So what we need to do, and the most important factor in this, is that we need to know, need to go back to integrating community health into our primary care practice. That is the key. That's something that each of us can do and go back to this holistic approach, the spiritual approach, which is so missing from our our practice. Thanks. (laughs) Thank you very much. Well, our time is up. It's time for you to go. Um, Go to... uh, are Are you doing a seminar?